Does God have a body? Seventh-day Adventist, it's been charged, make the physicality of God the very foundation of our message, our system, our theological system. Now, in a significant way, that is true. In fact, all Christians do that because the ultimate manifestation of the physicality of God is when God became a man in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So yes, definitely, we believe that that in that sense, God took on a human body and became human flesh, who became one of us in the amazing incarnation, a part of the gospel of Christ, act of reconciling us, redeeming us. But in terms of the Father in heaven, do Adventists believe that he has a body, flesh and blood? This is a subject that needs more attention. Welcome to the Ellen White Podcast. Here is your host, Dr. Judd Lake. Hello, friends, and welcome back to a special bonus edition of the Ellen White Podcast, an episode that will expand the discussion that took place recently in the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast, episode 22, hosted by Michael Campbell and Greg Howe. They invited Matthew Lucio and myself to address issues raised by on the cultist website in an interview with former Adventist. Is Adventism a cult? A response to cultish. We dealt with part one about a month ago, and just recently, part two. And there, I raised the issue of the physicality of God that uh, was raised on the cultish website. Colleen Tinker asserts that the very foundation of Adventism is this physicality of God, that God has body and parts. So I touched on that issue. I want to expand that discussion in this episode. I think it's important. Because what's happening is Adventists do see some aspect of that in God. But what do we mean by that? That there's a physical physicality in God. That's something that needs to be addressed very carefully. And what happens with the, the former Adventist is they put the strongest most extreme interpretation on Adventist beliefs and make them sound crazy, unorthodox, unbiblical, way out there. And that's really not reality, these extreme interpretations. And of course, in this case, at the foundation of Adventism is the physicality of God, therefore God has flesh and blood, uh, which certainly doesn't seem to fit Scripture. That is, God in heaven, the Father, flesh and blood. That does not seem to fit Scripture. So Adventists are really way out there and a dangerous cult. So I want to address that. And in fact, really, it's I'm glad that uh, this issue has been raised because it's an important one that we need to think about and discuss. Um, so this is a really positive opportunity to dive into it. So what I'm going to do in this episode, and by the way, I need to apologize for those who have been listening to the to the uh, uh, podcast and the last several episodes. I have uh, been saying podcast in those previous episodes when I meant episode, 
those of you who are really precise with language, and Matthew has reminded me about this, and so that's part of my uh, learning the podcasting way here. So I think I've got it down. I may I may interchange the two words, but uh, this is the Ellen White podcast, and this is an episode, all right, a special bonus, my second bonus episode uh, following up on the cultish interview, uh, expanding what my I and my colleagues have said on the Adventist Pilgrimage site, and this is just uh, more in-depth on Ellen White issues. So, what I'm going to do, I'm going to ad- address, address a couple of statements Ellen White makes, then I want to look more at the biblical evidence. I'm going to read to you, share with you, I'm going to read and comment on what Adventist scholars say and scholars outside the Adventist community, because Adventists are not the only ones that discuss the image of God as having some physicality about it. So we want to look at that. So first of all, let me share with you two statements in early writings. And these actually come from Ellen White's earlier book, Experience and Views, in 1851. So this goes back as early as that period. Here's what she said. This is in 1850. She reported, I have often seen the lovely Jesus that he is a person. I asked him if his father was a person and had a form like himself. Said Jesus, I am in the express image of my father's person. That's page 77 in early writings. So this certainly needs some explanation. And the key is the historical background. If we just read it without understanding the background, you, you could read all kinds of things into it. And that's what has been done. But this is in response to the early days after the disappointment. There was all the great disappointment of 1844. There was all kinds of crazy ideas and fanaticism. And one of the fanatical movements that James and Ellen White experienced and clearly resisted repeatedly was this idea of spiritualizing everything. The Millerite uh, group, after the disappointment, they broke up into different divisions, three basic divisions. One of them was called the Spiritualizers. And they had this extreme fanatical interpretation. You can read this in the post-disappointment Millerite literature. And what they did was spiritualize everything. Christ had come spiritually. And so they diminished the literal second coming of Christ. So what they rejected with this basic teaching without getting into a lot of depth about it, they rejected a literal heaven. They rejected literal literal destruction of the world by fire. Uh, They rejected the resurrection. It was not literal. And even they rejected a literal body of Jesus. And, of course, the second coming. And this greatly concerned the early pioneers, particularly James and Ellen White, because they saw God as a real person. Jesus was a real historical human being, the God-man that walked on this earth, and his coming back again was real and literal. His resurrection was not something to be spiritualized away. It really happened in human history, as the Bible says it did. And so they were resistant to this. And, And in addition to this, you have the creeds, Adventist, and this gets into the whole issue of the Trinity in the history of Adventism. I'm not going to get into all of that now, although it's somewhat related. I can only touch on it. That is probably something I'll deal with in a future episode. 
of this podcast. There, I think I got the terminology right. But in the Methodist creed that Ella White grew up with, The Doctrines and Discipline of the Methodist Episcopal Church, published in 1856, it basically says about God, there is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body or parts. That is, God is pure spirit. And of course, in the backdrop of the spiritualizers, this was something they had trouble with because in Scripture, God is represented as a personality, as, as someone who can relate to us in a warm, loving, personal way. And to spiritualize God away would take away his personality. And so when Ellen White writes here about this, this early vision that she experienced, I've seen the lovely Jesus, that he is a person. Of course, this is the resurrected, ascended Jesus. And I ask if his father was a person and a form like himself. And so Jesus said that, yes, the Father has a form. In other words, God is not just something totally spiritual, totally theoretical, totally principle. God is an actual being, a person. Now, of course, the issue is brought up where Jesus was speaking with the woman at the well in John 4 and said very plainly, God is spirit. Well, I want to share with you what Ellen White believed about that because she certainly did not deny that. That's a clear scriptural teaching that God is spirit. But for now, let's, let's ask the question. If God has a form, does that mean he's part of creation? Does that mean he's not transcendent? In other words, does this challenge those traditional doctrines of the transcendence of God and the separation of God from creation? Not at all. At least in Ellen White's thinking. And in Adventist thinking. In another place, in Early Writings, page 54, another place where she saw Jesus and the Father, I think, balances this other statement out. Page 54, she is writing again about the form and person of God. So in this vision, she, quote, saw a throne, and on it sat the Father and the Son. I gazed on Jesus' countenance and admired his lovely person. The Father's person I could not behold, for a cloud of glorious light covered him. I asked Jesus if his Father had a form like himself. He said he had. But I could not behold it. For, said he, if you should once behold the glory of his person, you would cease to exist. So, I think that's very clear that in Ellen White's understanding that the Father had a form did not mean he had a physical body, a flesh and blood, like here on this earth. I mean, God is beyond that. And, and as I will show you in Ellen White's writings in other places, she clearly understood the transcendence of God, that he is outside of and above his creation. This idea of him having some type of form as a being did not diminish his, his transcendence, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, because through his spirit, he can be everywhere. 
The Bible shows us God is localized in some places, such as on the throne, but it shows him as far above all creation. You cannot put God into a box. Scripture is very clear on that. A verse that Ellen White liked to repeat, Isaiah 57, 15, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. He inhabits eternity. You cannot put God into a box. And while, as I will argue, that heaven, God's throne, is a real place out there, yet you can't contain God there. God dwells there. God is localized there, but God is also bigger than that. He inhabits eternity. He inhabits the universe. Isaiah 66, 1. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you have built for me? And what is my resting place? In other words, God is, is bigger than the universe. Much, much bigger. You can't put him into a box. So, God's form is something, at least for Ellen White envisioned, she could not behold. Whatever it was, it was something beyond human comprehension. And it was so glorious and majestic that it would destroy human flesh. So that, I think, puts it in perspective. But what I want to do now with that introduction is look at Genesis 1.26 and the image of God. Now, in a pamphlet that James White wrote in 1861 called The Personality of God, he argues from this that there's a physical aspect to God. He makes a, a strong argument from that. And this, of course, has been addressed by critics as as foundation for the Adventist idea of the physicality of God and the interpretation that's put on it, again, is an extreme interpretation, although I will acknowledge that not all of James White's arguments, you don't find Ellen White repeating those, and they're not something that Adventist theologians use today, but the basic direction that he took it, that God is a person, and there is some physical aspect to God, that's the general direction that Adventist thinking has gone. But what does that mean? So I would like to read to you from some an Adventist, an Adventist biblical scholar, Old Testament scholar, who cites other scholars outside of the Adventist community. Now this is Dr. Richard Davidson, who's taught at the seminary a long time, well-known Old Testament scholar. This is a paper that's been put into a book, What Are Human Beings That You Remember Them? This is Proceedings of the Third International Bible Conference at Jerusalem on June 11 through 21, 2012. I was there, and the tour and trip was wonderful, as well as all the presentations. And this is one of the papers that's now published in this book. And Dr. Richard Davidson is describing here the Imago Dei, the image of God. And I want to read to you couple of pages and comment, because I think this is well summarized of what scholarship says about this issue. So, and he, he addresses the Hebrew words there in Genesis 1, 26, that God was made in, uh, man was made in God's image. Quote, a careful semantic examination of the word salim, image, its etymolo etymology, 
And its 17 occurrences in the Old Testament reveals, reveals that, as summarized by Bruce Waltke, who is a very well-known Old Testament scholar in evangelicalism. Waltke says, aside from its two possibly figurative usages, Selim, image that is, always refers to a physical image having a formed body. John Goldengay, who is another well-known Old Testament scholar in evangelicalism, draws the implication, quote, an image is the visible representation of something, which suggests God's image lies in humanity's bodily nature. The First Testament systematically presupposes a correspondence between God and humanity in its bodily as well as its inner nature, end quote. Now, Davidson continues. With solid biblical data, David Carr counters the common notion, quote, that Genesis 1 must be talking about something else, anything else, than actual physical resemblance between God and humans, end quote. Now, I'm going to continue reading from Davidson, and this is a rather lengthy quote. This is a scholarly presentation, so bear with me on that. It's one of those things where you might want to listen through and put your little finger and bring it back again and, and uh, listen to it over because it's rich and worth uh, pondering. So let's continue. The second Hebrew word in Genesis 1.26 depicting the resemblance between God and humanity is the abstract noun demut, likeness. In his 25 occurrences in the Hebrew Bible, this term refers most often to abstract qualities. Although it can occasionally be used for material objects, it is generally used to signify the appearance, similarity, or analogy of non-physical traits. Thus, the Hebrew word salim, image, and demut, likeness. And it would be a good idea to uh, take a look at Genesis 1.26 and read that for yourself. Again, thus the Hebrew word Salim image and demut likeness, although possessing overlapping semantic ranges in their juxtaposition in verse 26, appear to emphasize the concrete and abstract aspects of the human being respectively. Elona Rashko summarizes the implications of this juxtaposition. God says that his intention is to make Adam both in our image, that is, physically similar, whatever that may mean, and in our likeness, having the same abstract characteristics. So as you can see, there are other scholars that have thought about this physicality of God in the image. In Genesis 1.26, and by the way, if you read earlier in this paper, Davidson has summarized all the various views on the image of God. And it's very interesting as you look at them, and there's about seven, seven interpretations of this. And the physical aspect is one of them. And those scholars really emphasize the physical. But as we're going to see here, it's not wise to put too much emphasis on the physical, admittedly, as James White did in The Personality of God, in that pamphlet, The Personality of God. You don't want to overemphasize that. But let's continue. This recognition that the Imago Dei is both concrete, outward physical resemblance, and abstract, inward spiritual, mental, moral resemblance seems to lay the foundation for the anthropological duality, not dualism. There's a difference between duality and dualism. Dualism, of course, is platonic dualism, the, the, the radical distinction between body and soul. Anthropological duality is something else. It's throughout the Old Testament, which conceives of the human being 
outwardly in terms of physical flesh, Genesis 6-3, and inwardly in terms of spiritual moral faculties, called among other designations, the heart. Now, I discussed the meaning of heart in uh, this recent episode in Adventist Pilgrimage, episode 22, and I will touch on it again here when I get to a comment that Ellen White makes later on. That's where you find the spirituality of human beings is located in the heart. We'll get to that later. At the same time, Davidson continues, the two expressions, Salim image and Demut likeness, are used together in Genesis 1.26 in our image according to our likeness, with no conjunction separating them, and both terms are used alone as a cipher for the two together. Genesis 1.27 uses Salim, and Genesis 5.1 uses Demut, thus implying that these terms should not be taken as describing two separable components of the human nature, as presumed in Greek dualism, and is attempted throughout much of the history of interpretation under the influence of such dualism. Rather, these two terms indicate that the person as a whole, both physical, bodily, and spiritual, mental components, is created in God's image. See, notice the totality of the language here, friends. That's what's going on in Genesis 126, is that the totality of a human being and what God created, what it means to be in God's image. Continuing with Davidson, in his commentary on Genesis, Von Rod, it's Gerhard Von Rod, another uh, very famous Old Testament theologian of the 20th century. Gerhard Von Rod has insightfully concluded with regard to Genesis 1.26, one will do well to split the physical from the spiritual as little as possible. The whole man is created in God's image. So rewind, friends, if you need to, to get these thoughts down because they're important. Likewise, Verizon, I think I pronounced that name correctly, I'm not sure, he contends that the whole human being is created in the image of God. Thus, Genesis 1.26 supports an understanding of the Imago Dei as resemblance, both inward, spiritual, and outward form. Many of the inward material qualities suggested throughout the Christian throughout Christian history as part of the image of God are actually supported in the context of Genesis 1 through 3, that is chapters 1 through 3. For example, the divine prohibition in Genesis 2:16 and 17 implies human free will to make moral choices. Adam's naming the animals, Genesis 2:19 and 20, implies rationality and analytic mental power. Eve's dialogue with the serpent, Genesis 3, 1 through 5, demonstrates memory understanding, linguistic abilities, and reasoning powers. Her response to the serpent's invitation to eat of the forbidden fruit reveals an aesthetic sensitivity, Genesis 3.6, and the loss of the covering of light, Genesis 3.7, implies a loss of innocence, righteousness. At the same time, many expressions of divine and human activity in the garden imply an outward resemblance of form and feature between humans and God. Both God and humans speak, God plants a garden and the human is to tend and keep it, Genesis 2, 8 and 15. God forms or shapes animals in Adam, to chapter 2, 17 and 19. And Adam names the animals that are formed. God breathes, breathes his breath and Adam has nostrils, Genesis 2, 7. God performs a surgery upon Adam, removes one of his ribs and builds Eve. He brings Eve to Adam and officiates at the first wedding, Genesis 2, 22. 23. He becomes 
or he comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day, Genesis 3, 8, conducts a personal investigative judgment of the guilty pair, Genesis 3, 8 through 19, and makes tunics of skin to clothe Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, 21. The language throughout these chapters implies that the image of God is not physical or spiritual, outward or inward, but both and in harmony with a holistic and unitary view of human beings, something that a wide range of scholars recognize as the, the unitive view of the Hebrew mind, the holistic view that, that to separate things uh, does it fit. They saw all things as a unity. Now, a couple of other statements Ella White makes fits this, the scenario of scholarship we just read. In The Great Controversy, page 644-645, she says this, Man was to bear God's image, both in outward resemblance and in character. And in the book Education, she wrote on page 15, When Adam came from the Creator's hand, he bore in his physical, mental, and spiritual nature a likeness to his maker. So, scholarship is emphasizing that it's, it's not just one or the other. It's the whole package. It's them working together. Now, I want to share with you now from two commentaries, two scholarly commentaries that reflect what we've just discussed. This is outside of the Adventist community. So, as you can see, my, a point I'm making here, among others, is that this is not just an Adventist or Ellen White thing here. There is valid, careful, evangelical, biblical scholarship that recognizes that the physical aspect in the image of God is a factor that cannot be ignored. We've already heard from some major Old Testament theologians. Here is a very good evangelical commentary, the New American Commentary on the Bible. Kenneth A. Matthews wrote the commentary on Genesis. This is a well-appreciated evangelical commentary. Here's what he says, commenting on Genesis 1.26. Both image and likeness are used of physical representations where there is a correspondence between a physical statue or drawing and the person or thing it represents. Most commentators have anatomized the individual person into material and spiritual properties, thus identifying the Imago Dei as either physical or spiritual. See? And of course, those who would disagree with Adventists are going to take the spiritual position. But neither do Adventists take only the physical position. He goes on. This dichotomy, however, is at odds with Hebrew anthropology, as Genesis 2-7 bears out. A person is viewed as a unified whole, a point I was just making a moment ago, from what Davidson was saying. The whole person, even all human life collectively, is in mind in Genesis 1-26. Just let me just, I've been citing Genesis 26. Let me just read that for you in case you don't have a Bible before you. I should have done that earlier. But here's Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image 
and after our likeness. That's the text. So continuing with Matthews in the New American Commentary on Genesis, since Mosaic law prohibited any physical representation of God, we've got examples in Exodus 21 and 2 and Deuteronomy 4.16, it is commonly questioned that the physical form could not be intended. Deuteronomy 4.16 may well echo Genesis 1.27 where it specifically prohibits making any idol in the form of male or female. But neither Deuteronomy 4.16 or the Sinai prohibition, Exodus 21 and 2, has image or likeness. We cannot on this basis, he writes, rule out the physical dimension as constitutive of the image. Of the words used for idols and statues in the Old Testament, the term image, shalim, is less often associated with idol worship, though it does occur, Numbers 33:52, and therefore was not necessarily troubling to the reader. We may add that theophany usually involves human form. That is when God came to Abraham, came to uh, various patriarchs, and so forth. Jacob wrestling with the angel, you recall. So we may add that theophany usually involves a human form, and the prophets envision God in human form seated in a celestial room. Now he has an end note here, and he refers to Isaiah 6, 1, Ezekiel 1, 25 through 28, Daniel 7, 9, 14, Amos 7, 7. These are places where God is seen in his lofty throne room, the throne room of heaven, and so forth. So the prophets envision God in human form seated in a celestial throne. They do not say that God is a human, for Ezekiel makes it certain that he saw a figure like that of man. Ezekiel's theophanic vision with his recurring use of likeness recalls Genesis 1.26 and illustrates how likeness is associated with theophany in the Old Testament. Image and likeness, then, would have suggested that the presence of human life represented God, as did the tabernacle, not that man was divine. Moreover, that the image involved physical form does not mean that God is corporeal, that is, physical. For there is no warrant, or body, I should say, for there is no warrant in the passage to look for human beings to reconstruct the properties of God. So in other words, there's some physical aspect about the image of God that was conveyed or communicated in the creation of Adam and Eve. But God himself is not limited to that. God is not flesh and blood as we imagine it. But there's some element of physicality involved here, and these scholars are acknowledging that. Again, we don't want to take this too far because nobody knows on these things. In fact, Ellen White, numerous times, several times, in referring to workers and ministers who were attempting to parse God and break it down and try to define God. She said, silence is golden. That's why when she talked about God's form, those two statements I read earlier are very rare. That's not something that she discusses much at all. And she discouraged human conjecture and speculation to what degree God has a form and what is that like. We do not know. All we can go by is what is revealed. Here's another commentator. This is from the famous New International Commentary set. Ny this is on the Old Testament. Nicot, New International Commentary on the Old Testament. And uh, this is a well-known scholar 
in this commentary on Genesis, Victor P. Hamilton, a scholar that I've read and respect and appreciate much of what he's written. But he writes here, it is clear that Genesis 126 is not interested in defining what is the image of God in man. The verse simply states the fact which is repeated in the following verse. Nevertheless, innumerable, innumerable def definitions have been suggested. Conscience, the soul, original righteousness, reason, the capacity for fellowship with God through prayer, posture, that would be the physical, etc. Most of these definitions are based on subjective inferences rather than objective exegesis. Any approach that focuses on one aspect of man, and here's the key statement, any approach that focuses on one aspect of man, be that physical, spiritual, or intellectual, to the neglect of the rest of man's constituent features seems doomed to failure. Genesis 1.26 is simply saying that to be human is to bear the image of God. This understanding emphasizes man as a unity. No part of man, no function of man is subordinated to some other higher part or activity. So, when we talk about some physical aspect here in the image of God, that's only one constituent part of the entire image of God. It involves the outward and the inward, the physical and the spiritual, the whole thing combined. And that's where James White, in remember, he was attempting to counteract the spiritualizers and the spiritualizing away of God, making God pure spirit. He wanted to see God as personal and Perhaps in his interpretation, uh, he went a bit too far. I think that he did. Uh, you don't find Ellen White using that exact terminology, but the basic direction that he was going is one that seems to, that, that there is a physical aspect to God, seems to, that, that to be what's going on here in what these scholars are saying. So in other words, this is not just an Adventist thing. This is something that scholars outside of Adventism are acknowledging too, but in a very nuanced and carefully balanced way. And that's how I think we should take it, and that's how Adventists view it. I want to read to you from another Adventist scholar, Jacques Ducan, well-known Old Testament scholar in Adventism, like Davidson, and he has written a commentary. There's a new Adventist commentary set. I'll say more about this in, a, in another episode, uh, because I'm going to talk about Adventist scholarship in relationship to some of the charges made against Adventists, but there is, a new, there is a new commentary set that Adventists are doing to replace the old Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary, the Seventh-day Adventist International Bible Commentary. Only a couple of volumes have been published so far, and one of those is the Genesis Commentary. And Dukan, specialized in Genesis, wrote his doctoral dissertation on that and has written this commentary. It's an overall excellent commentary. And the focus, of course, is just interpreting Scripture. And these are Adventist scholars who specialize in the biblical languages. Dukan is, is well known as an as a excellent Hebrew scholar. I'm not going to read the entirety of his comment on Genesis 1.26. It's very insightful, and it overlaps with what I read from Davidson. I just want to read this one paragraph that is very insightful about the idea of God. And he's focusing on this, this aspect of the image of God that we're, we're discussing. The biblical definition of humans in the image of God has important implications in regard to our understanding of God. Being physical as well as spiritual beings, individual humans 
because they are created in God's image, testify to the unity of God as a physical as well as a spiritual being, and hence to the historical nature and individuality of God's person. God is, and here's the idea here, that goes back to our early Adventist in resisting and over-spiritualizing of God. God is not an abstract concept or mere spiritual reality. God is not a principle. As a physical and historical being, God exists by himself as a unique individual, and therefore apart from human theological or philosophical imagination and reflection. In that sense, even though God is a physical being, he remains far beyond our comprehension. And he references Deuteronomy 4, 15, and 16. In addition, in addition, rather, our experience of existing as a physical and material reality testifies to the similarly real existence of God. God exists as humans exist. So, those excerpts from Adventist scholars as well as other Old Testament scholars outside of the Adventist community are helpful in understanding this, this issue of the physicality of God. Granted, it should not be taken too far. We need to be so careful and nuanced in a biblical way about what that means. And I don't find Ellen White violating that in terms of the balanced way that it's presented in Scripture. God cannot be put in a box. He inhabits eternity. That is something that she repeatedly emphasized throughout her voluminous writings. But at the same time, God can, is personal. He comes and relates to us on a personal, intimate basis. And the culmination, as I said at the very beginning, the, the apex of, of God's revelation is in His Son, Jesus Christ, who was incarnated in human flesh. Talk about the physica- ultimate understanding of the physicality of God, so we certainly don't want to throw the physicality of God out because God became a human being. But God the Father, His form is something beyond human imagination. We can only relate to the form of the Father in what we see in the form of the Son in human flesh. And that's kind of the idea that, that Ellen White mentioned where, uh, where she asked... Jesus about the Father's form and and the Father was like himself and Jesus said, I'm in the express image of my Father's person. And uh, that's again, has to do with the intimate relationship between the Father and the Son, the oneness of the triune God, uh, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they are one. Um, there's mutual indwelling. This is something beyond our comprehension, but it it is what it is, and this is the nature and complexity and depth of God, God Almighty. God the Father is, is the Almighty God, and His Son, who is the Almighty God equal with Him, became one of us. Anyway, I don't want to get too much into all the details of a Trinitarian relationship. That's, a, that's another topic, but suffice to say that... Uh, Sometimes we tend to want to dissect the Trinity. And uh, that happens in evangelical discussions and Adventist discussions and so forth. But ultimately, the triune nature of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, is, is, 
It's something to be worshipped and praised because God is so far above what we can comprehend and we can only go by what he has revealed to us in the scriptures. But as far as I can see, the Trinitarian nature is embedded throughout the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, the Trinitarian patterns all through the New Testament. Anyway, I said I wasn't going to get into that. I'll save that for another time. But this aspect of the relationship between the Father and Son does touch on the Trinity. Now I want to go to some statements by Ellen White and read those and comment on them. And this is from the book Education, and it's related to this subject we've been talking about. This is Education, page 131. She's talking about science in the Bible. She says, A mighty power that works through all nature and sustains all things is not, and this is page 131 through 133 that I'm reading, A mighty power that works through all nature and sustains all things is not, as some men of science claim, merely an all-pervading principle, an actuating energy. God is spirit, yet he is a personal being, for man was made in his image. So you see, in light of what we said, this makes a lot of sense. She never denied, and this is what the critics do, is try to put the most extreme interpretation and, and say that we don't believe God is spirit. But God is spirit, Jesus said. No, we clearly believe that God is spirit, and Ellen White is asserting that here. God is a spirit, as Jesus said, yet he is a personal being, for man was made in his image. As a personal being, God has revealed himself in his Son. Jesus, the outshining of the Father's glory in the express image of his person, Hebrews 1.3, was on earth found in fashion as a man. As a personal Savior, he came to the world. As a personal Savior, he ascended on high. As a personal Savior, he intercedes in the heavenly courts. Before the throne of God, in our behalf, ministers one like the Son of Man. And yet, as she's going, will point out, through his Spirit, Jesus is omnipresent. And Jesus can be with us through the Spirit. Again, this is the amazing activity of the triune God, the Trinity working together. It's the Spirit who makes God omnipresence. It's the Spirit that defies all human comprehension. Anyway, continuing in what Ellen White is saying here on page 132, the Apostle Paul, writing by the Holy Spirit, declares of Christ that all things have been created through him and unto him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, revised version. The hand that sustains the worlds in space, the hand that holds their orderly arrangement and tireless activity, all things throughout the universe of God is the hand that was nailed to the cross for us. You see how she moves from the greatness of God, the hand that created all things, down to the hand that was nailed to the cross for us. Of course, that's figurative language, but the point is that God is a personal God who made a personal sacrifice for us. And God is very personal. He died for each one of us individually as persons. He is our personal Savior. That is her great emphasis and burden. God is not some principle. The Father was fully involved in this as well. He is a divine being who is full of love. And if you go back to my last bonus episode last month dealing uh, with this same uh, cultish podcast. Um, I am talking about Ellen White and salvation and assurance, and I have a section in there where I talk about 
the great love of God. A beautiful statement Ellen White makes about the love of the Father, the paternal love of God. Go back and find that part and listen to it. It's very moving and powerful. Continuing here on education. The greatness of God is to us incomprehensible. The Lord's throne is in heaven, Psalms 11:4. Yet by his spirit, he is everywhere present. So this is full Trinitarian thinking here. Uh, there's no limiting God to any one place in the universe. While God the Father is on his throne in heaven, yet he can be present everywhere in the universe through his spirit. Again, the greatness of God is in, to us incomprehensible. The Lord's throne is in heaven, Psalms 11, 4. Yet by his spirit, he is everywhere present. This is in harmony with a number of the Psalms that clearly and distinctly locate the heavenly sanctuary, God's throne in heaven. Psalms 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. That's a representative of several psalms, verses in the psalms that say that. In Jeremiah 17, 12, this is an interesting statement. A glorious throne set on high. From the beginning is the place of our sanctuary for Israel. A glorious throne set on high. That clearly is not the earthly sanctuary. That is the sanctuary in heaven above. That glorious throne set on high from the beginning, that goes, and the word here in the Hebrew goes back to the very beginning of creation. God set his throne on high, and that is the place of our sanctuary. That's Israel's ultimate sanctuary, is the sanctuary in heaven. So it's located as a real place. And this is where the physicality aspect is important to Adventists. These things are real. We're against spiritualizing them away. We're against a platonic presupposition of pure spiritual uh, God with no place, that he's pure spirit and he inhabits everything, but there's no place where he localizes his presence. And again, I want to emphasize, while God localizes his presence, that's very clear in the Bible. He comes in the tabernacle, localizes himself, he dwells with his people. At the same time, he's much bigger than that. He inhabits eternity. He inhabits the universe. So you have this tension between the omnipresence of God. He, he cannot be localized anywhere. He's almighty, and yet he localizes himself. He manifests himself in specific locations. You find that all throughout the, the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament scriptures. So these passages fit with what Ellen White is saying here. Let me go to the next page, page 133. It was the maker of all things who ordained the wonderful adaptation of means to end, of supply to need. And by the way, she has just cited Psalm, several psalms. One of those is Psalms 139, 7 through 10, the famous psalm that deals with the omnipresence of God. He's everywhere. Continuing here with the quote, it was he who in the material world provided that every desire implanted should be met. It was he who created the human soul. Notice the language here. The human soul with its capacity for knowing and for loving. Now, by human soul, she is not talking about an immortal soul that is planted within the body. 
that will leave the body when it dies. That's not her understanding. By soul, I mean, read this throughout her writing. She means the whole person. She means the inner person. She means the Hebrew concept of the heart. That's where the spirituality of human beings lie, according to the Hebrew understanding, is within the heart, where you have the intellect, the thoughts, you have the emotions, the affections, and you have the volition, the, the choices, and the decisions, and the thinking, and the deciding. That's where spirituality finds its seat. And that's where the capacity for knowing and loving God is found. And it's a human function. A human being in his, his or her totality. That's why when God created human beings as a whole person, not as a separate entity, inserted a soul into the body, that, Adventists believe, is a platonic presupposition that's read into the Bible, and it doesn't fit. So she means the whole person because emotions and feelings and thoughts, Ecclesiastes 9.5 says that death, those things, all those human inner heart, mind activities, they, they cease at death. They cease when the body ceases to function. That's the Hebrew understanding. And I'm going to re reference a number of sources outside of Adventism, scholarship outside of Adventism that's that's really coming into play here on the idea of conditional immortality. That is, that immortality is conditioned on faith in Christ, and it's not innate and natural with an immortal soul. But let me continue with this statement by Ellen White. And he is not in himself such as to leave the demands upon of the soul unsatisfied. No intangible principle, no impersonal essence or mere abstraction. And again, this is written years into her, her ministry. But she still is, is, is reacting against that over-spiritualizing of God. Again, no intangible principle or impersonal essence or mere abstraction can satisfy the needs and longings of human beings in this life of struggle with sin and sorrow and pain. It is not enough to believe in law or force, in things that have no pity, and never hear the cry for help. We need to know of an almighty arm that will hold us up of an infinite friend that pities us. We need to grasp a hand that is warm, to trust in a heart full of tenderness, and even so God has in his word revealed himself. So the whole thrust of her, her focus is making God personal. God is someone we can understand, we can relate to, we can have a relationship with, and he cares for us in that emotional way. He has emotions like us that he communicated and gave to us, and so we can connect with God that way. It happens within the human body, within the human heart. God has made us in his image. He, made, he gave us the capacity to commune with him in our, our full bodily existence, and that's, that's the Hebrew understanding. That's what you find in Scripture. So, friends, if you stuck with me this far, I appreciate it. I know it's been a bit technical with reading some of the commentaries and scholarship, but I want you to know the, uh, I just believe it's important in responding to some of the negative charges against Adventists on this issue that, that there is some in-depth scholarship and thought that has been put into this. And so that's why I took some time to give you some of the present scholarship. Let me just uh, begin to wrap things up here. The immortality of the soul, of course, if, as I just mentioned, that uh, Adventists do not embrace that idea. I'm not saying that uh, Christians who believe in immortality of the soul all believe in Plato. 
Of course not. And many would not consider it from that factor, from that perspective. So this is not putting any motives on Christians at all about that. Many, there are many wonderful, sincere Christians who believe in this immortality of the soul, and, and uh, I, I respect them and their, their walk with God greatly. It's just that for, from the Adventist perspective, when you really listen to the language and descriptions of immortal soulism, it, it just it has this platonic sound to it. And uh, our belief is that, is that that is a presupposition foreign to Scripture itself. And Adventists are not the only ones that are coming to that conclusion. Now, years ago, Leroy Edwin Froome, an Adventist scholar historian, wrote the classic two-volume book, Conditionalist Faith of Our Fathers, where he traced conditionalism. That is the idea that uh, death, when you die, you go into a state of unconsciousness and awaiting for the resurrection, that life only comes at the resurrection. He traced this from Platonic times, or I should say the time of Plato, all the way up through now and showed a trajectory of conditionalism. And today, there are a number of Adventist scholars, major Adventist, Adventist, excuse me, evangelical, let me get that right, evangelical scholars that are now embracing conditional immortality, that immortality is not natural through an immortal soul, that immortality is only imparted officially at the resurrection. Of course, Jesus said, if you believe in me, you have eternal life. That's the already not yet. Already you spiritually can experience eternal life, but it's not actually physically or not yet realized until the resurrection. So immortal Immortality comes only at the resurrection. That's the idea behind conditional immortality. And, and there are major evangelical scholars embracing this. John Stott is a well-known scholar back in the 1980s, announced that he had been questioning the traditional teaching of eternal burning hell. And uh, with that, of course, comes immortal soulism. Edward Fudge also well-known evangelical who parted from the traditional view of hell and immortal soulism, wrote his classic book, The Fire That Consumes, now in its third edition. A whole movement has begun following him. There's a book that came out not too long ago, Rethinking Hell by Christopher M. Date. These are all evangelical scholars, trained biblical scholars. And that, that book, Rethinking Hell, has a whole set of, of works by evangelicals scholars that are rejecting the traditional teaching of immortal soulism and eternal burning hell. So my point here is this is not just an Adventist thing. Other scholars are recognizing the Hebrew unity of, of human beings in the, made in the image of God in the Old Testament and uh, understanding that Sheol, for example, is not a place of disembodied spirits, but it's a place of, sli- of, of unconscious, consciousness. It's a place of the grave, simply. That's what it means. And then a lot of the New Testament background, the New Testament passages as well, that they're not teaching immortal soulism, that conditionality is, is, the, is the, the focus there. So I won't get into all of that now. That would take me far beyond the purpose of the Ellen White podcast, which is to focus on Ellen White. But I want to, to give information that backs up Ellen White's claims, and that's what I'm doing here. But let me now engage with my final words to wrap this up. Adventists have been accused of 
being sub-Christians because we don't embrace immortality of the soul by the former Adventist groups, and that because we believe that upon death, you go into a state of unconsciousness. So one charge that, well, we're just like the atheists that believe that at death, life is extinguished, and there's no hope for the future. Wow, what a gross misrepresentation. Because the fact is, Adventists thrive in the biblical hope that is expressed in perhaps the greatest chapter in the Bible on the resurrection. I should say one of the great chapters uh, in the Bible on the resurrection, and that's 1 Corinthians 15. Paul starts that with what the gospel really is about the doing and dying of Christ. And then he goes through some misunderstandings that the people are having about death. He compares the sinful body and our flesh now with the, what it will be like in the resurrection body. And he comes with the grand consummation about what it will be like in the resurrected body. A totally spirit-filled body, free of all the shackles of life as we know it now. But it will be a real body. And so the Adventist hope is the New Testament hope, the resurrection. At every Adventist funeral I've ever attended and actually conducted myself as a pastor, inevitably, the resurrection hope is the theme. That the loved one who has died is now in a deep, dreamless sleep. God has the memory of that person. And on the great day of the second coming, when the dead in Christ shall rise first, 1 Thessalonians 4, the dead in Christ will be raised to eternal life. That's hope. That's the Christian hope. That's the Advent hope, the Seventh-day Adventist hope. So please, friends, don't, don't accuse us of being sub-Christian. We believe in the hope in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, of course, that's where Paul is, is describing the beauty of the resurrection, the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ shall rise. Here's what Paul says. Then we which are alive and remain, this is verse 17, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. That word so in the Greek is pronounced hutos. It means in this manner, in this manner. So shall we ever be with the Lord. That is, in this manner. In what manner? The dead in Christ through the resurrection. Those of us who are alive in Christ comes, translation. In this manner. Not through a disembodied existence between the first and second coming. No. It is only through the resurrection. In this manner shall we ever be with the Lord. In this manner shall we experience eternal life. It is through the resurrection, friends, not through a disembodied existence of the immortal soul, but through the resurrection of the body. That's the hope of the New Testament. That's the Adventist hope. So our takeaway from this is God is personal. God is our friend. He's the almighty God who cannot be contained, contained in any human box, in any place in the universe, and yet he is personal. And he relates to us on a personal basis. And ultimately, he became one of us in sending his own son. So that's 
I think, the significance of the physicality issue of God. Don't want to take it too far, yet there is something that shouldn't be ignored in the biblical text with regard to that aspect. So friends, thanks for listening. Hope this has been helpful on this particular issue. I will have one more episode at the end of this month, uh, April 26, regular uh, episode of the Ellen White podcast, and I will finish up my remarks about the cultish interview and wrap it up then. So again, thanks so much for bearing with me through this time and listening. Remember, always test a prophet by the prophets of the Bible. See you next time. Thank you.